What does it mean, Messiah Matters? It means apart from him, we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, May 2nd, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 216. I'm being fully annoyed by what sounds like a lawnmower in my office. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, the man who is reading not one, but two papers at this year's Society Biblical Literature yeah. Annual Meeting, Rob Van Hoff. What is up, Rob? Beautiful day. Beautiful day, beautiful day. I'm just thankful to God for his provision and for the desire that he puts in the hearts of his people to seek him and to learn. And what a time to in history to be alive, man. We've got, we've got internet, right? We can do these uh, recordings. No we doubt. Have access to high-res uh, images of the Dead Sea Scrolls and other manuscripts. Dictionary. There's so many free resources online, but a the desire. Where do we get the desire? I mean, so yeah. So let's say a person has all this stuff. So a person might have a bunch of Bibles on the bookshelf in their house. They might not pick them up. So, so having access is only one part of the deal. You got to have the drive, but then so you could have someone who's got zeal and they've got access but then they just draw the wrong connections um oh golly (laughs) so you're talking about uh i mean we're gonna get into this anyway can i can can i share one sure oh rob's already annoyed i okay so i get i get emails from people i get questions from people and people that don't you know, I'll encourage them to watch Robin Caleb's show or something or Messiah Matters. But I so I got on this person who's not a messianic, uh, like what we would call pro Torah, but Christian. I think he's Pentecostal. Somehow I got on it. We have a common friend, and somehow I got on his ministry email list. So almost every day I get some sort of Bible verse with his explanation of it. And yesterday, this was like. Uh, we see that the Passover was used to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, and we can now study how Jesus used this same plan to deliver us out of the bondage of sin. Uh, Jesus, and he quotes this Matthew 12, three days and three nights, and says, Jesus was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. We will use the Jewish calendar oh, to no. show that uh, the Passover lamb was set aside on the 10th of Nisan, a Shabbat. <laughs> I think he means a Sabbath, but it's a, a Shabbat. But, but the 10th of Nisan is not a Shabbat. I don't, I don't get it. But in any way, he says, then 
the thirteenth day uh, was inspected for spots and blemishes. I'm getting and then the fourteenth. It was killed, roasted. This correlates to the three days and three nights, and then and then it says shalom, and and so he's sending this out as a teaching. So finally, I'm like, I emailed him and said, "Will you, will you remove me from your list?" I, I'm like, I, you know, because there's been times in the past where I emailed him back and said, "Wait a minute, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this," and I'm, I'm like. I get the distinct feeling that there was a Hoff goes off moment in your office <laughs> over email. No, that one I just said, can I j- just please remove me? You know, I, I so wh- why, why do I even share that? It's just, okay, so you have resources, right? We have resources. Then we have the desire to engage God's word. We love God's word. We, we know we want to learn about the history. We want to understand it. But even that's not enough. Because you, everybody's a scholar, to, man. Everybody's a scholar. Exactly. Everybody is a scholar, and so the question is. No, I mean, I mean, I don't mean that in a good way. What I mean is, like, no, I know, I know. Some guy I, I, with Wikipedia at his fingertips thinks that he's a biblical scholar and is sending out emails all the time because he thinks he's found something. This is the problem with the de- degradation of of seminaries. You know, you hear people in the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement who have no training at all, say cemeteries instead of seminaries. This is moronic. And the reason why is because if these people would actually take just a, a few minutes and go to uh, to uh, get some biblical education. We had somebody on our on our YouTube. Uh, they were just flooding our YouTube this past week with uh, with all these uh, emails about or all these comments on multiple different uh, uh, videos about two house theology. Now. That's fine. I have no problem if, if somebody wants to talk about two-house theology. But the, this person's point was that um, the house of Israel was male, was the male gender, and the uh, house of Judah was the female gender. And uh, she was trying to show us that, uh, that uh, this is cl- clear from Scripture. Now, she did this without citing one verse out of the Bible in any of her comments. So... Um, when I asked her, you know, she said, I'm, well, I, I asked her, I said, could, could you please uh, provide some verses to prove your point? She said, oh, well, I'm, my book is forthcoming. And I show that the Hebrew grammar and the Greek grammar are, uh, you know, show this within the text. I said, oh, great. Where did you get your biblical education? Who'd you study Hebrew and Greek under? Oh, well, you know, and the response was something of the effect of he who has eyes will will see and he who has ears will hear, blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's great. But you're sidestepping the question. Where'd you get your biblical education? Where'd you learn Hebrew? Where'd you learn Greek? So she, so if, do you, this is a gal, right? You said right. this is a lady. So she's using her, of her own choice. She's using words like grammar and gender to right. talk about the language. Right. But which are, which, which presupposes some sort of education that acknowledges something called grammar and gender, but yet she's not telling you where she learned these terms or how to apply them or how to... Right, and she never would. So basically I said, look, you get one more chance. One more chance is all you get. Tell me where'd you, you know, you can, and your answer is probably going to be something like, I don't have any biblical training. I don't know Hebrew or Greek. And that's a sufficient answer, but I'll ask you one more time. I ask one more time. She never responded at all. She went silent. So I just de- I just deleted all of her comments from the. You know, if you're gonna have those kind of conversations on our YouTube channel, that's totally fine. But at least be honest. You know, don't try that's to. That's where people use mystification. Right. There, there's like, oh, whoever has eyes 
to see will see. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like my, oh. my favorite response from, from people like this, from the from the self-proclaimed uh, scholars uh, is that uh, is that, well, the disciples didn't have any any uh, uh, training, which is the biggest uh, load of nonsense I've ever heard that when you eat, sleep and, and travel with your teacher for three years straight, guess what? That's more you training. Pick than a, you pick up a few things. That, that's more training than most people get in seminary. You know, the people who are going to the seminary where Walter Kaiser is is uh, teaching, they're not eating, sleeping, and traveling with him. Right. They, they get have, him. What, they get two it like hours a, a lecture a, a week. A week, and, right? And maybe office hours, or or you know. <laughs> Michael, your mom goes to college. Oh man, actually, uh, thank you, Michael. I, that reminds me, I do have a, uh, I have my soundboard back and running. I believe. Um, let's see here. Do I have? I have everything. Here's the problem is that uh, now that I've, well, Kaiser, now that I have, have got my entire soundboard back, I don't know where anything is. I think that view is headed for a deep mischief. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a problem, deep but I, mischief. I, I do have one of my, if anything, if anything, you know, Lord willing, if the Lord tarries and I live a long life and I look back, deep mischief is going to be like, there's like a, that's like a term that. That's a once-in-a-lifetime term. You know, I would have never come up with deep mischief. Your mom goes to college. That's what uh, that's what Mike was looking for. Actually, this <laughs> brings me to uh, this brings me to some uh, to another point, and we need to uh, let's move on now. Um, and before we move on, we need to say a couple of things. First of all, Torah Res- uh, Messiah Matters rather is brought to you by TorahResource.com. Torah Resource exists to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. Go to Torah Resource today for papers and articles on count the Omer, which you should be doing right now, if you're not, start, start up, or on upco- on the upcoming festival of Shavuot. We have a lot of things uh, linked right there on the on the homepage that you can uh, go and check out, and it's all free. Uh, that's all free. Now, we do have a store, obviously, and we do uh, charge for some of our products, but uh, we, there are a lot of free re- resources on TorahResource.com. Um, and of course, Messiah Matters is also brought to you by our producers, um, and our producers are the backbone of this show. Uh, they keep the show going each week, and you can become one of our producers for as little as $5 a month. That's right. For the price of a latte each month, that's one latte per month, you can help support this show and have thousands of people hear it and see it all that's over like the world. It's like a small latte these days. I know, right? It's not even a vente. It's like a grande latte. Um, okay, and so uh, it should be noted that uh, there are links to all this stuff in our show notes, and if you don't get our show notes, I would highly recommend doing that. I've been trying to expand our show notes, and for those who do get our show notes, we have uh, we have about 250 people who receive our show notes right now. Um, if the longer show notes with more stuff in it is annoying, let me know. Normally, I've just been uh, putting links in and, and Bible passages. Now I'm trying to expand a little bit and uh, kind of give you... Uh, kind of a, a look at some of the things that Rob and I are talking about and some of the things that go on uh, with us during the week uh, so that people can be part of those conversations, get some conversation going in emails and things, and then we can bring them up on the show. So if those are things that people like, then uh, definitely let us know. Um, I think that getting a bigger package of show notes is, is always nice, um, but I don't want to overwhelm people either. Okay, and then finally, the last thing I want to say, this is really exciting, at least it's exciting for me, because we already have people chomping at the bit for this, Um, at least one person, at least one person, I shouldn't say people, I should say a person is chomping at the bit for this, and that's exciting in and of itself. Um, We're going to set up executive uh, producers and uh, associate producers for this show, and uh, basically what that's going to be is you will be able to... um, uh, 
you'll be able to purchase a producership or an, uh, a associate producer or an executive producership, and uh, you will get something for that actually. Uh, and uh, all of the information will be on our webpage hopefully in the next week or two, and uh, then you will be able to produ produce specific shows. And uh, somebody has already uh, signed up to do that. And uh, there's going to be perks. And one of the things that we're going to do is let people choose several sound clips that they want to hear uh, in whatever order they want to hear them. So if you know, you want to hear something like... Just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Um, you know, these kind of things. You can uh, you can choose a couple of those and you will be mentioned on the show that you uh, help produce. Okay, with all of that being said, should we move now? Let's move. Let's move to our, uh, we do a segment every single week now, and it's called Buy, Borrow, or Bag. And this is the segment of the show where we look at a book. And uh, what we do is we re essentially review the book and uh, tell you whether or not we think you should buy it uh, borrow it from someone like a library or a friend or bag it, meaning throw it in the trash bin and uh, see it no more. Uh, this week, uh, a special request has been made to review a specific book, and that book is a book we have talked about on this show before. Rob and I both have it. It's a book called Jesus in the Talmud by Paul Schaefer. Now, this actually I have... Peter. Peter. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Peter Schaefer. Paul Schaefer was the yes. music director the, for yes. the Yeah, the, the Letterman, yes. Or, or uh, late, late night. Day Actually, day. I think his best work was done on uh, Spinal Tap. Anyway, not the point. Um, Peter Schaefer, rather. Peter Schaefer wrote this book. However, it would be very cool. Never mind. Um, okay, and uh, I will be completely... Mine is, uh, mine is signed. Oh, nice. Yes, he's got a signed copy. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't read this whole book. I'll be With completely honest. my best honest. wishes for your future study. However, what I have done is I've, um, I have uh, leafed through this book, and I've used this book in numerous uh, articles that I have read, or uh, written rather, and um, I've used this book uh, to support some of the uh, things. So I've done, I, I can't say that I've read it cover to cover, but I have read most of this book, I'd say. Um, but since you've read the whole thing, why don't you launch into it? I would say... Of our buy, borrow, or, or beg, I would say it's either one, one or two. It's either buy or borrow. I, and it, the difference would be, I mean, I'm just, I'll, and then I'll unpack why. But just to cut to the chase, I think if if you're interested in in understanding uh, Talmudic literature, and you. Uh, are, you know, ha haven't read much, I would say this is a good buy. See, I, I disagree with if you. You're, if you're more tangentially interested, maybe borrow it and flip through can, it. Can I tell you why I disagree with you? I think this is a borrow. It's definitely okay. not a bag. It's a great book, okay? But if you're not doing specific work, I mean, if you're, if you're a, you know, we have people in our chat room who are going to school, getting doctorates, these kind of things. These kind of people might actually want to buy it. But for the average person in the chat room or listening on YouTube or listening on a podcast, this is a scholarly book that's going to look deeply into, um, you know, Talmudic references to Yeshua and, and investigate those. It's on a scholarly level, first of all. Second of all, unless you're writing papers or doing something specific, 
you know, within rabbinic studies, there's really no reason to own this book, I would say. It is a book yeah. that, you know, if you're, if you are writing on those kind of things, certainly it's a buy. But um, I would say for the average person, this is a borrow book because it's a book where you can read it once, get the information, write a couple of notes down and, and then have that knowledge. And, uh, you know, you don't have to buy it and you don't have to, you know, it doesn't need to take up shelf space depending on how much shelf space you have. You could probably get, if you wanted to buy it, you could probably get it fairly low cost. I can tell you right now, Barnes and Nobles has it for $16.95. And that's brand new. So you could probably find a used one because it's been around for a while. Um, Anyway, so what, some of the things that I think are valuable about, uh, well, Peter Schaefer taught at Princeton for many years. Um, I have a couple of his books um, and he, you know what? I'm going to hold this as a unprecedented. I'm going to show you kind of what the world he comes from. Just a sec. So can I just tell you that the hold music that we used to have on the Robin Caleb show, uh, YouTube bans it because it's under copyright. And since we don't own copyright, so I, I just have to sing it. My other, my, I have other volumes of his, uh, upstairs, but this is, uh, uh, right? So it's in it's German. But this is the kind of work that Dr. Schaefer is famous for. So this is the. Do you speak uh, German? I took German. It's, I'm not very good at German at all. I do not speak it. But can you read through um, that? I try to read it. But this text is not, it's very little German. It's all. Learn Hebrew something new every day. This is, this is the work that. Dr. Schaefer does, you can kind of see, I'm trying to hold it up so you can see why you see multiple columns of Hebrew text. And I hate to tell you book, this. Nobody can see that through the, your camera. Is it not visible? Not visible. Anyway, <laughs> what this is, is he takes the, all the manuscripts of the Jerusalem Talmud and puts them column by column. So you can compare manuscripts all in one volume. Well, yet this is one volume of multiple volume series. So uh, Dr. Schaefer, is, uh, his career has been immersed in rabbinic texts. Right. And, and so this book is, um, touches on just a tiny facet of what he actually is. You're talking now in. about Jesus in the Talmud. Yeah, back to the back to our book, Jesus in the Talmud by Peter Schaefer. He's got another one called The Jewish Jesus, I think, which was a follow-up on this. Uh, talking about uh, medieval stories about Jesus that were not in the Talmud, but like told Yeshu, other things that drew on Talmudic legend. Um, anyway, what, this is valuable. He gets into, uh, because it's not so simple as just getting your English translate, you know, Sanchino Talmud and thinking that you have the Babylonian Talmud. Right. By the way, you can go, I think it's halakha.com. You can download all the Sanchino uh, English Babylonian Talmud. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to buy the Talmud. If you, you know, you can, it's all online for free. However, what you don't have online for free is all the critical notes pertaining to the different manuscripts. So uh, what, what you uh, one value in what Schaefer's book here is he shows all the he doesn't just look up oh Sanhedrin 116 right what he does he looks at all the manuscripts of that section and compares them with each other right. and so it goes way deeper than what you're going to get by just looking at an English translation anyway, I think it's a so, borrow so he gets into that and it's it's a good book one other comment and this is on, on the heels of our discussion last Passover 2017 with Dr. Petrie, 
right. is that the, the Talmud seems to assume, the Babylonian Talmud seems to assume that Yeshua uh, was crucified on uh, during uh, Nisan, what, he, what yeah. we would think of as a the Yochanin uh, chronology. What do you? What do they call that? Johannine. Uh, uh, yeah, hypothesis. the Johannine hypothesis. So, so Schaefer takes it to mean that oh, the Talmud must have been aware of the Gospel of John. But what we see now is that that uh, it's very clear, particularly as uh, Dr. Petrie has really hammered out. Even though we knew this, uh, Tim Pegg hammered this out years prior, just didn't get the traction. Um, is that that's that would need to be modified in in Dr. Schaefer's book here, uh, Jesus in the Talmud, because it seems that the Talmud is forcing an interpretation, right? Um, rather than getting it self evidently from the Gospel of John. So anyway, I would say borrow or beg, or or, or or buy or borrow, but probably agree with Caleb more borrow. The buy would be for those who are building a library and, and really want to spend time understanding the Talmud in its historical context. One thing it's not doing, Schaefer is not going to tell you that the Talmud is there for you to fill in the blanks behind Jesus' life, <laughs> right? He's not going to let you do that. He's saying, no, the Babylonian Talmud is a text product from Mesopotamia from centuries after the destruction of the temple. And you can't take in, you have to let it speak in its own voice you can't take it and use it as a backdrop for the Gospels. So, uh, so it's good, methodologically speaking, for a believer to read it and, and see, oh, okay, I can't do that. I can't just cite the Talmud and, uh, as a backdrop for the New Testament. You know. Anyway, that was maybe a little bit long, but that's the nuts and bolts of it. Read your Bible as interpreted by experts. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, I've noticed that my soundboard is really loud right now. I apologize, everyone. It's been so long since we've had a, a soundboard on this show. Um, for good reason. For good reason. It gets a little overboard, uh, which will be nice when we have associate and executive producers, um, you know, uh, and a segment to do that in, right? Okay, let's move on to more important things. Um, let me, I'm sorry. Let me get to my notes here. I have a question that was sent in. I believe this is actually on a YouTube uh, video that we posted, and this was the comment that was posted on the on the video. And it goes a little something like this. Hi, guys. I enjoy watching your videos. This is my first comment here on your channel. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Uh, I get where you are coming uh, from, Caleb. Now, this is in reference to... Um, uh, food offered to idols in First Corinthians. Paul speaking about food offered to idols. Okay, and I said that uh, Jews would never uh, consider non-kosher food to be food. Uh, he says, "I get where you're coming from, Caleb. You are making a point that first-century Jews, by means, would have eaten unkosher. I think he says wouldn't have uh, eaten unkosher food. For that reason, you said that unkosher food wasn't considered to be food, at least for an observant Jew." However, why did Paul consider it important to write the passage if the food he was talking about was supposed to be kosher? The verse says, eat anything that is sold in the marketplace. Was it only kosher food that was sold in the marketplace? In the case of being with an unbeliever, it says, eat anything that is set before you. Paul made it clear what was the exemption, food sacrificed to idols. Well, no, he says you can eat 
food sacrifice cycles. Anyway, I appreciate you guys trying to give an honest answer, yada, yada, yada. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you very much for the comment. And uh, these are good kind of comments. However, uh, my response, I wrote a response and I'll kind of give a summary of my response. And I want to be very careful because I know that there are young ears that listen to the show, but I'll try to give an, an analogy. If someone says that a marriage bed and the relations that go on there, well, that's I can't even use that word. If somebody says that uh, that um, sexual relations is it should only be used for procreation, okay, um, then I come along and I say to you, and maybe I'm not a good example of this, but uh, let's say Paul comes along and says, no, 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 um, uh, you know, the Lord gave us uh, things for pleasure as well, and sexual relations is one of them. So you don't have to just uh, use this for procreation. You can use this uh, for pleasure as well, right? Does that mean that every man now thinks that he can go outside of his uh, marital bed and uh, and have relations with anyone because Paul said that you could have that for fun? No, because he didn't specify that it was just with your wife? No, of course not. We see what Paul says within what God has already given. In other words, the, law that, the laws that uh, God has given, Paul is not going against the laws that have already been given. What he's doing is giving a perspective or an understanding of the laws that have already been given. Therefore, when he says you can eat anything in the marketplace, it's just assumed that God would that, that Paul would never say, oh, well, of course, now you can eat unkosher food. That was a law that was throughout all your generations. It was forever. And it was an abomination against God to eat unkosher food, is an abomination against God to eat unkosher food. And so the, the point is, God's holiness does not change. And an offense against his holiness does not change. You can't just say, oh, well, some guy comes along named Paul, and he gives a new interpretation on the Bible, and now uh, now we have to throw away what the Bible says. That's what people who are Mormons say. The Mormons. The Mormons say that Joseph Smith came along and went against Scripture, and we throw out Scripture because of it. When did Christians ever do that? Well, recently Christians have because of the rise of the idea that, that the Torah is supposed to be kept. And granted, even in church history, within the church fathers, they spoke against uh, these specific things. But the point is, is that Paul did not come along and speak against what had already been written in the Torah. You want to say anything on this, Rob? Well, yeah, I mean, let's say they were selling. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you if, if you're going to say, well, uh, eat everything that's sold in the marketplace. Whatever sold in the marketplace, eat it. If that if that is your guideline as to how to build your menu, <laughs> well, if you're going to take that in in, I mean, what if they're selling uh, belts, hats, <laughs> right? There obviously has to be some sort of constraint, right? Um, there has to be some sort of of constraint that's implied here. Peter makes a great um, point. Peter makes a great point. He says. Uh, Argument can be used to support Torah observance, e.g., how do you get to Disneyland? Answer, take the 405. True. However, you do need other information to get to Disneyland. You don't just take the 405. That's not enough. And the, the roadmap that we have is Torah. We have to see Paul within Torah, within the map of Torah. If we try to take Paul outside of the map of Torah, we get a whole new religion. And essentially, this is what's happened, right? Now, granted, at the same time, we have to be quick to say Judaism is not, uh, as we see it today, is certainly not the religion that Yeshua was uh, observing. Um, you know, he wasn't a Hasidic Jew or a Kabbalistic Jew or any nonsense like this. 
No, instead he was, you know, there, it was a different flavor, obviously, in the first century. The there, there's another. If you look at this, the context here, we're talking in First Corinthians chapter ten, and it kind of goes twenty three through maybe thirty somewhere in there. Um, Paul's point is for the believer, for the person who's on mission, basically, right? The person who's on mission because their life is now totally anchored in, centered on the, their life in Yeshua, right? Right. And, and so they're in a world that not everybody's like that. Most people are not like that. Okay. And so you're in a situation, and this is in the diaspora, where you're with other people, right? Because it says, let no one seek, you're not you're seeking for yourself, but you're seeking for the, the edification of the other. And the other is the person who's presumably a new believer that's with you, right? The newer right. believers. And Paul says that you have to have concern over how they are learning and how they're going to interpret things. And twice in this passage, he says, without asking questions, this anacrino word, without asking questions for conscience sake. But then he says, but not your own conscience. It's for this other person's that you want to build them up. Right. Uh, not, not destroy their conscience. Okay. So that's the context is, is relational co-life, right? Living and maturing uh, relationships uh, serving the Lord together in, in uh, relationship with a, a more mature believer, presumably with a less mature or one who's, who's uh, new. The, the, that don't ask questions for, for the conscience sake, the word ask questions here is too soft. This, I'm looking at the NASB, NASB. That's too soft. It's the same word when they, in the Gospels when they're interrogating Yeshua at Yeshua's trial. It's not just like, um, well, what do you think of Deuteronomy 24, Yeshua? No, this is like, this is, is a situation where, if you imagine, imagine a zealous Jew who's, who comes from a tradition of real stringent dietary uh, uh, specifications, right? And they come in and they go up to the meat market and they say, well... Was this, how did you do, well, how was the animal treated? Well, what is, you know, and start asking a bunch of questions. That, that what Portla blessing did you say? That Portlandia. What was this chicken's name? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> we'll go find out. <laughs> well, Your chicken's uh, name was Brian. <laughs> the point is, this. In, it, I take this as an interrogation of the person selling the food in terms of what blessing was said, where was it done, uh, um, tell me exactly, you know. Were you facing east? Things. Yeah, a bunch of things that would separate a real stringent, uh, uh, what you might think of an ultra uh, uh, strict first century Jew. What kind of questions would they ask before they ever ate meat? Right. Versus someone who's not as stringent, but yet still wanting to eat what God said to eat and not eat what God said don't eat. Right. So there's a, there's a, obviously there's a difference here. We know there's a, a, a difference here because we have different sectarian groups in the, in the first century. So they're going to have, they're going to come down different on this. So I understand versus 
26 and again in 28 or 25 and 20, 25 and 27, it looks like, sorry, about the asking of questions really to be an interrogation that then this younger believer is witnessing. Right. And that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And then it says, if if one of them is not a believer, obviously in 27, if an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, so presumably, it's not just you, oh, I think I'll go. This is, your, this is addressing a person who believes that they are more or less on mission for the king, gospel of the kingdom. Right. And an unbeliever, if just an unbeliever comes up to you randomly in a crowd, will you come eat dinner with me? You're, you know, you're going to probably ask questions, you know, and then if you want to go, right, then you're going to ex- accept their hospitality. But my assumption here is that if if a person who's who's demonstrated that they are a believer in Yeshua and they worship the God of Israel, they um, uh, that he's got a Torah that it defines sin and all this stuff, and someone invites you. Because you, and you've already made it clear that that's who you are, and they invite you to their house. My, I, I'm pretty confident that they are. It's at an effort of of connection, and they are going to seek to demonstrate hospitality, which right. means they're going to be attentive. To they're not going to just say, "Hey, check this out." You know, Paul the apostle. I'm going to. He said in his letter, he's going to. He would. Uh, eat anything i'm gonna i'm gonna put a pig's foot on his plate <laughs> and i'm gonna watch i'm gonna just sit there and savor while he has to eat that and then i'm gonna say then i'm gonna catch him that's not what's going on here right that's not what's going on here at all okay uh, I, I, I think that the, yeah I, I i completely agree with you um Okay, I think that we need to move on. In fact, I think that we're not going to have time to to get to everything that we want to get to today. So with that being said, um, I think that it's probably important for us to move to main topic now. And if we have time left over afterwards, we will chat about some other things. Um, we've had, you know, we've had good emails and a lot of good emails recently. Keep them coming. We love getting emails like these Um and comments on our Facebook and YouTube, really, really excellent. It helps shape the show. Um, okay, so we're going to go now to this question. I pulled this question. I forget who it was from, and I apologize to the person. Normally, I try to give credit where credit is due for questions like this. Here's the question. I'm reading through 1 Corinthians and came across the part of the letter where Paul speaks of women not permitted to speak, keep silent in church, and that it, it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Now, this is interesting um, because this person quotes just a piece of, of the actual passage. This is the part um, that we're looking at. I'm going to read it for you here. This okay. is uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 33b through 35. And um, it says, As in all of the churches, or the ecclesia, of the saints, the women should keep silent in the church, in the ecclesia. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in the ecclesia. Now, this sounds to me like, uh, and I think to everyone else, and especially to the to the modern day feminist movement, like Paul is uh, telling women to shut up and and sit down and uh, be seen and not heard. Um, however, I would uh, posit that uh, just several uh, verses prior to this, 
Um, uh, I'm sorry, chapters rather, several chapters prior to this, Paul actually contradicts if this is what's going on. If if Paul is being, uh, you know, a, a woman hater here and uh, doesn't want any woman to say anything, then he certainly contradicts himself in chapter 11. This is what he says in chapter 11, First, First Corinthians 11, 5. He says, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay. How can a woman pray or prophesy how can a woman prophesy? That's the, probably the best question. How can a woman prophes- prophesy in the ecclesia if she has to keep silent all the time? There's got to be something else going on here, and this is something that I think a lot of people don't uh, don't think about. Okay, so um, let's start. Let's read the passage again in First Corinthians 14. Let's start in verse 29. Let's get some context here. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So obviously, if a prophet, if a woman can prophesy, she can be one of these two or three prophets, right? Mm-hmm. If, a re- if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the woman should keep silent in the churches. The, uh, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be submit uh, submission, be in submission to as the law says, so on and so forth. Okay, so um, let's. I'm going to read a passage from my dad's uh, book or my dad's paper, rather, the role of women in the uh, Messianic assembly, and then I'll f- shoot it over to you, Rob. Okay. <clears throat> this is what he says. He says it is not difficult to see how the structure is laid out. By the way, this paper is totally free on Tor Resource, and I've put a link in the show notes what? towards the bottom of the show notes. <clears throat> uh, the first part of the verse 29 gives instruction to, to the prophets about speaking. The second part discusses the issue of judging, literally sifting the prophecies. My proposal, 24, uh, verse 24, is that uh, verses, uh, I'm sorry, that might be a footnote. Uh, My proposal is that verses 30 through 33 address the first part of Paul's instruction in verse 29. That is, the details about the manner in which the prophets speak. And verses 34 through 35 delineate a specific detail about the manner in which judgment was to be passed on the prophecies as they were given. One can now understand how silence is interpreted in the scheme. Women are to remain absolutely silent when it comes to passing judgment on the prophecies given by male prophets. Thus, in short, what is prohibited here is the verbal judgment of prophecy by women in the assembly, a practice which would cast them in a position of unrecognized authority over men. And I think that this, we have, you know, Paul is big on authority structures. And that's not just women under men, right? The authority structure is that men is, uh, that uh, Yeshua submits to God, to the Father. The men submit to Yeshua. The women submit to uh, the men. The children submit to the women, so on and so forth. And then we have, we even have men within the ecclesia submitting to other men who have been put in authority, right? The elders and the overseers are to be in authority over men. And then men uh, are to be authority over their household. And when we say authority, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, uh, you got a rod and you're, and you're beating people around. No, it means that uh, it means that there is an authority structure, just like in any, uh, I mean, any business, any, uh, military, any whatever. There's an authority structure, right? And uh, God's family is uh, no different. It goes all the way up to the father and goes all the way down to children and infants. 
And uh, what's interesting about this is that when Paul talks about men loving their wives, they're supposed to love them like they love themselves. In other words, they put the, they put their wives above their you know they're, they're supposed to love their wives like Yeshua loved the ecclesia. Well, Yesh- what did Yeshua do? Yeshua loved the ecclesia so much that he put his life down. When you love, when you truly love a person, it's not ho- holding authority over them. Authority is not go make me a sandwich. Right. That's not the kind of kind of authority we're talking about. In fact, uh, in, in when you see good marriages, what tends to happen is that th- that it is a mutual co. Um, you know, it's it's a partnership between husband and wife to accomplish what the father wills. This is what the authority structures is meant for. Okay, I'm done. Go for it, Rob. Anything to add? Um, yeah, as, as a fact, I think that it's important that we can... Hang on just a sec. You got a buzz. You got a buzz on your mic. Say something. You got a buzz. Testing. Testing. One, two, three. Check, okay. check, check. No. Hmm. Interesting. What do we do? Can people in the uh, can we uh, in the chat room? Can you hear the uh, the buzz that uh, is going on? Hang on, just a sec. Yeah, it's definitely there on my end. It all looked, it just occurred all of a sudden. Yep. That's weird. I haven't done anything differently. Yeah. Bad buzz. Okay. Okay, um, let's try this. Uh, why don't you hang up and give me a call back? Okay. Sorry, folks. We will try to fix the uh, the problems here without having to disconnect. Let's see what happens. Du, 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 du. Sorry, I wish I had hold music for everyone. I could give you all the uh, discussion notes. <laughs> okay, here's Rob. Let's see. Say something. Is that better? That is much better. Thank you. Okay. Let's get back into it. Your thoughts on uh, oh, women. Oh, 1 Corinthians 14, yeah. Right. Um, it seems that in Corinth it was a house church. Right. right. So this is this was, um, I mean, Caleb, you, you know this firsthand right now. Right. Imagine a small house and you've got a bunch of people. And you have typically, you know, back in the first century, the women would be seen, they would be thinking of their home. If it was, if the, if there was women either owned the home or were part of the couple that are hosting, they see themselves as being responsible for, you know, food and, you know, getting all sorts of logistic behind the scenes stuff. And I think that Paul wants to set apart the meeting of an ecclesia from other kind of house events. And he wants to do it by saying there needs to be an order. He says that in verse 40. Right, right. All things must be done in properly in orderly manner. And the word silent, where it says the women stay silent, is used for the prophets, right? If, it, if you, for example, you go back up to 14, let all thing, uh, 1426, let all things be done for edification. So he's saying there's a, an orderly service that is for edification. If no one's there to interpret a tongue, then that person must keep silent. Right. If uh, two or three prophets speak, let the others pass judgment. If, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. 
So what's going on here? And then he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. God is not a God of confusion, but of shalom in all the ecclesia. Okay, so the point is, it, yes, it, we might be in a home where normally an informal gathering can be a lot of people talking at the same time, a little group over here, a little group over here. You know, occasionally maybe they sing a song together. I don't know, whatever. But it's, so it's in that home space. However, there's something of an order that is supposed, that Paul expects to happen for the sake of edification for the body as a whole. And, and one of the, he gives very little, what we would think halakhic restraints for that, because there's a lot of freedom. But what he does insist on is order and that people aren't talking over each other. This, right? And, and it's got to be for edification of the body. People can't all talk over top of each other. And then he gives, so I think we should understand this in that regard, that it might have been the case that uh, there were women hosts host might have just started asking someone else, what, well, what did that mean? Well, what did that mean? And actually, not because of an intention to, to disrupt, but out of a desire to learn, but not having learned how to, how to be in a larger, how to experience an order, right? How to, how to, to be part of, of a, what we're calling a service here, where there's scripture read, um, gospel explained, and, and on, taught. On this note, we have to remember also, I'm sorry to interject, but we have to remember also that, uh, you know, the idea that, that uh, the synagogue, as we have it today, was not the same, you know, it wasn't set back then. In fact, there's a lot of discussion within scholarly, uh, within the scholarly world right now, whether or not there was even uh, set liturgical prayers from one community to another. And so the idea is, once the, you know, once Paul and these small groups in the diaspora are starting to make these small home groups or whatever they may have been, um, there's really not, uh, there's no set pattern already. The only pattern that people really have as a set pattern is that of the temple. And so now, with the, with, when we're far enough away from the temple, in 54, whenever uh, Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, we have to think of, they're actually creating services. You know, they're creating the, the order of service for themselves. Keep going. And I, I think that, well, yeah, I mean, there, the idea is, you have to uh, understand the context here is what mid in the mid fifties, maybe Paul's already been in Corinth for, he was there for a year and a half. Right. If I remember right by this time. Um, so it's, he, he, and he's still home churches, right? Home fellowship groups. And he wants to just say, look, it's gotta be done in order. There needs to be Shalom and it has to do with, people controlling themselves. In other words, if I have something to say, I got to hold tight and wait. I don't just blurt it out. And that's why he says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That, that word subject is the same word used in, in 1434. They're, they are to subject themselves, talking about the women. They're to, they're to have self-control. And, and verse 35 says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, which to me make, it makes sense that these women were speaking probably, oh, well, I didn't understand that. Well, 
can you explain that to me? You know, and, and it was not, uh, they hadn't been trained kind of just to understand this bigger picture. And, and that's all Paul's trying to do here. I think the other, in my view, he's trying to set up a, a way where people, uh, can interact over a period of time around the scriptures, around the message of the gospel to help build up one another. And everybody has to, uh, get along and listen to one another. I, I think the other thing that we have to remember is that uh, the Torah in its time was extremely uh, progressive when it came to women's rights. I know that sounds weird because when we look at it from our modern time, we you know people look at the Torah and say, oh, this is this this puts down down women. No, in the time, if you look at some of the other treaties and whatnot that were going on around, there, women had no rights. In fact, they were clearly property in the time of the Torah. When you get to the first century. Once again, we have uh, not women's rights was not really a, a huge thing. However, we continue to see that that uh, the believing communities gave more rights to the women within their communities than what was going on in the uh, surrounding cultures. And so, the fact that a woman, you know, women were valued. And not as pieces, not as pieces of property. In fact, we have uh, Christian inscriptions and whatnot that seem to tell us that uh, women held property. Some women held property. Women uh, were big donors and sometimes uh, donated to synagogues uh, greatly. Were Absolutely, cons- were right. considered RK synagogue. That is the the head of the synagogue or leaders of the synagogue. And that's not to say that they were leading the synagogue. That means that they were probably were giving large donations to to help build synagogues and whatnot. And so they they were given uh, these plaques and and th- those kind of things. Um, in turn, I want to go back for just a second. You said uh, you know First Corinthian or in, uh, the Corinth community was probably a home group. Um, there's a, a new uh, line of scholarship that is suggesting um, that, and it's not definitive by any stretch of the imagination, so I don't want people to hear me say that I believe this or that this is dogmatic. I, I, just to show a, another perspective that uh, the Corinth community, the suggestion has been made, and uh, I believe it starts here with Edwards Adams, Edward Adams in uh, the early Christian meeting places, and then the subtitle, Almost Exclusively Houses, question mark. And he suggests, uh, well, he actually just does kind of overviews of different uh, proposals. One of the proposals is that perhaps the Corinthian community was renting a room that was not attached to the pagan temple, but adjacent to the pe- pe- uh, pagan temple, perhaps across the street or something like that. And that uh, Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians is to try to separate them from the uh, the pagan worship that was going on in the temple across the street. Now, whether or not that's true or not, I haven't done research on it yet, and uh, I, I certainly have not been swayed one way or the other. But it is an interesting proposal, and uh, that might, you know, that could be uh, one reason that we would see these kind of exhortations. Anyway, um, just a just a thought. Okay, we do have time, I think, to uh, to fit in one more uh, one more email here, and this was uh, sent to us by Andrew. Uh, let me find it. I apologize. Andrew writes: Could your show address the correct historical grammatical meaning of the term mamzer? Unlike the rabbis, who say mamzer is a bastard child, the Karaites say it is a reference to another one of the immoral pagan nations like the Amalekites or the Philistines. I would like to think so, as it automatically makes the Torah more compassionate. A person cannot choose the circumstances of their birth. 
this is an excellent question and one that is far outside the scope of my abilities as um, uh, in terms of linguists, linguistics and also, um, you know, the, my personal uh, opinion on this is that there's just not enough evidence to be dogmatic about it. But uh, I will I will. Uh, man, I think your your mic went out again. Let's hear it. Check one, two. Oh, yeah. Went out again. Uh, let's see here. Let me see if I can fix it. I think it's on your end, though. You want to call me back one more time? Sure. Let's do that again. Do it. Do, 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 do. Okay. You know what we can do while uh, Rob disconnects and reconnects? Go for it, Rob. You can disconnect, eh? Um, let's, uh, let's play some uh, clips we haven't played in a long time. Um... Why do you hate the Rob and Caleb show? Honestly, I think they're vain, stupid, and incredibly self-centered. Check. Yep. Better. Okay. okay. Yep. I don't know what's creeping in there. Um, so the term mamzer, I don't think we can be yeah, dogmatic about it. Yeah, is, it, you know... I, I agree with you, Caleb, that we, we, we can't be dogmatic. And here's why. Because it only occurs once in the Torah. Right. It only occurs once. Mamzer. Which is in your show notes, by the way. Deuteronomy 23. 23, too. Yeah. In the English 23. And so what, what do we do? Hebrew. What do we do when a word occurs once? Well, do we go right to the Talmud? <laughs> no. 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 That's not the method that, that we use. We can, we can certainly, as part of the research, you can see what the Talmud has to say. But... Um, that's not the go-to, A, and B, it's, it's not even necessary because we want to go, what we want to do is look, what, what can we learn historically? So you go back, for example, to the, to the Septuagint, and you can say, well, how did the Greek Jews understand this? Right. And the Greek-speaking Jews um, understood it to mean ek pornes, ek pornes, which means of a prostitute. Right. So um, that's one place to to get you know a picture, um, and that's you know that's really the deal. Um, uh, it is true that you know the rabbis will say, I don't. I think the rabbis take a, a different angle that it's a illegitimate birth, right? right. That it's. Uh, um, but again, they're building an interpretation that's from a later era um, than than what we have here. Um, so, but but we, I mean, the Torah talks about children of certain people not being able to be part of the uh, of the ecclesia or of the right. uh, at least of the temple service, right? Uh, right? So the Amalekites, right, are not allowed to be a part uh, even to the tenth generation. Are not allowed into the congregation, right? What what's a, a good point here is that, well, the Septuagint and apparently I didn't look it up, but if, uh, I have footnotes says Targum Jonathan also so a, a Jewish Aramaic Targum also takes it to mean uh, offspring of a, a of a prostitute. Um, so, uh, but but, but, we but should, one we... other one one other point here, and this is sometimes brought up into the conversation, is is uh, Jephthah. Yep, Peter talk. just brought it up in the uh, Jeff, in the uh, yeah in, the in, in judges. Room, oh, good, yeah. good, Peter, good, good on you, Peter, because um, he was a son of a of a prostitute. Right, it says he was a he was a son of a zona, of a harlot, and so 
if he's the son of a harlot, what happens? Well, you can see he gets he gets sent away basically until they realize they need his military skills, and then they get uh, so. Uh, we um, like you enough to fight. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, in I, the Gospel I, of John, they say, "What did they say? We were not born in fornication or something like that." They tell Yeshua, um, and. Uh, there's a later, I think it's Bruce Chilton, who is a, Ang, I think he's an Anglican priest or something. I'm not sure. But he's written a lot on Aramaic. Uh, he, he did a translation of the, of the Aramaic Targum of Isaiah. And he's done a lot about thinking of, of Jesus as a rabbi. He's got a book called Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul. He's got, you know, he made a lot of money, I think, selling these ideas. But he argues that Jesus was a mamzer. Then so, why was he allowed in the temple so much? Yeah. So, so well, I, I'm not saying you should accept what Bruce Chilton is saying at all. I'm just saying that this is what you're going to find out there. You're going to find people taking that category, de- determining it like very precisely, and then putting it on places. And so I, that's why I think it's a good question that the, that the person emailed us because uh, it shows he's, he's, he realizes that, that, that you can't just uh, – uh, take one specific definition and Im- impose it everywhere. The fact is, I'm happy and, and I'm okay saying I don't know, right? And that our our data is limited. Whatever um, it is, whatever it is, you know, even with the Amalekites, the fact of the matter is, is that this is more of a uh, this more shows this speaks more to the parents. And this is the same with circumcision. A child who's not circumcised. Yeah, you know, it's not that child. Yeah. Is, is not allowed to eat the Passover until they become circumcised. But it's not a, it's not a dig on the child. It's a dig on the parents. The parents are the one who have neglected to circumcise their child. The Amalekites, the the offspring of the Amalekites, not allowed into the into the assembly. Well, okay. Once again, this is not a dig on the child itself. This is a dig on the parents, and what the parents have done. And uh, I think that that, that uh, culturally, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I think culturally the idea of honor, and we see this uh, in a lot of the Asian uh, cultures as well, but the idea of honor is much bigger of an issue, um, you know, in Asia Minor back in, you know, where Israel and Asia Minor and these things, it seems to me like the idea of if I do this, I will be dishonored. It's, you know, my child won't be able to do this and that will dishonor me. In other words, I'm the one who bears the shame of that. If my child's not allowed, allowed into the assembly because of something, it's it can look bad on me, not on my child. It looks bad on me. I'm the one who did it. And so it's like the, it's like the it's like the scarlet letter, you know, the scarlet letter that's put on you for the rest of your life because your child isn't allowed. Now, once again, I'm, I, I'm not trying to be dogmatic that this means it's a uh, child of a prostitute or anything like that. All I'm saying is that the idea of honor and and uh, shame as a parent, especially when it when it affects your child, for those of us who are parents, you know, uh, see, seeing your child shamed because of you is a horrific thing, and it's it's uh, it's not you know it's nothing that we would ever want on our on our children. So, I think that uh, it's not that the Torah is trying to be uh, unfair to you know to children or to any person it's that you know where's the pressure point that gets that gets things done and uh, in this case the pressure point of having your child uh, be shamed is that's a big pressure point in my opinion especially once you have a child then it's 
Yeah. Then it's really that case. Okay. Um, well, this has been a good discussion, and uh, you know we actually do have more that we can discuss. There have been uh, there have been people who have sent in other questions. Um, we really do uh, appreciate you guys sending in all of your uh, emails, making comments on the Facebook page and the YouTube page. I would encourage everyone to get our show notes, um, and I'm trying to expand our show notes more and more. Um, so make that a priority. Next week, uh, who knows what we'll be discussing, but it'll be something I'm sure that's good. And uh, yeah, yeah, okay, give us a call, right? 253-465-3205 is our comment line. You can also uh, email seahagatorresource.com. Until next week, we hope that uh, you'll come back when we try to do one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. <laughs> <laughs>